Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be skate. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Today is Friday, March 18th, 2022. Coming up on Roller Martin Unfiltered, on the Black Star Network. Uh, a black man spent 33 years in prison for double murder. Evidence that exonerated Robert Smith proves the cop who went on to serve as Chicago's police superintendent 
lied to George during his trial about taking his confession in 1987. Investigative reporter Dan Hinkle will explain how that evidence will help Robert Smith sue the city. She was convicted and sentenced for registering to vote. Tonight, I'll talk to Pamela Brown and her attorneys who want the charges dropped as they wait to find out if she'll be tried again. He was killed by California police officers while being a, uh, being restrained for a blood drawn a blood draw, drawn two months ago before George Floyd. Yeah, y'all, two months before. Now the family is suing for wrongful death. His daughter and the family attorney will join us. Now, Education Matters segment, a first-of-its-kind collaboration between Thurgood Marshall College Fund, United Negro College Fund, and the Partnership for Education Advancement to increase health and sustainability of HBCUs. Ed Smith, Lewis from UNCF will drop by to tell us about the HBCU Transformation Project. Folks, it is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the find. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. All right, folks, uh, welcome to Roland Martin Unfiltered. A black man spent 33 years in prison based on a lie told by a Chicago police lieutenant who later become the top cop in Chicago. Robert Smith was convicted and sentenced to life for a 1987 double homicide. He was primarily convicted on the testimony of Philip Klein, who said Smith confessed to the murders. A judge has overturned Smith's conviction and was overturned in 2020. He's now suing the city for wrongful conviction. Dan Hinkle, investigative reporter with Better Government Association, is here to tell us how all of this uh, happened. Uh, Dan, glad to have you here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. So, uh, what happened in this case? Uh, double murder, how did they pin it on Robert Smith? Uh, well, Mr. Smith arrived at the scene um, shortly after the. Uh, it was discovered because the home was on fire where these uh, two women uh, had lived, Edith Yeager and Willie Bell Alexander. He became upset. Um, there were, you know, there'd been a number of allegations and there's sort of differing stories about what happened. Um, but he ended up back at the uh, police station at Area 2 
uh, in Chicago, where... Was, when you say he arrived on the scene, was he living there, or was he just somebody saw a fire and just showed up and said, hey, what's going on? Uh, it was his wife's mother's home. Um, Got it. And so they arrived, yeah, yeah. And so was he related to any of the women? His It's his mother-in-law, yeah. Got it. So his mother-in-law was one of the two women who was in the home. Correct. Okay, so they, uh, took, they, him, had, they took him to Area 2. Yeah, they had, the women had had their throats slit. Um, and he, uh, he, was, he was there for several hours. The, the house fire had happened in the morning, and the police said that late that night um, that he confessed. And he had, all, you know, pretty shortly after the... Um, after they arrested him and he, um, after he allegedly made the confession, um, he started saying that he had been beaten, um, that he had been abused by the officers, basically, and they had, uh, his lawyers tried to get the uh, confession thrown out on the basis that it was, that he had, you know, he was reporting that he had been abused. Um, and nonetheless, he was uh, tried and convicted and sentenced to life in prison. He spent uh, 33 years in there, um, in prison, before he uh, prevailed upon the authorities to uh, to throw his case up. Okay, so they said he confessed to the crime. Was there any physical evidence that tied him to the crime? The physical evidence is complicated and disputed. Um, there's, the, you know, there are basically the, when, when they threw out his conviction or sorry, let me back up. Um, in Illinois, there's a torture commission that was convened specifically to hear allegations like this. And in 2013, they, um, they said they reviewed his case and they said that the, the confession beyond their, sorry, the evidence beyond the confession was pretty insubstantial and that it, it didn't mean much without the confession. Oh, the evidence didn't mean much without the confession. There was very little. They, their ruling was that there was there was not a lot to go on without the confession. Yeah. Okay. So they don't have a lot of evidence. All you pretty much have is a confession. When did Robert say this was beaten out of me, or I, I didn't confess? Uh, early on, he said that he was beaten. He's uh, within. I think months he had complained to the, you know, both doctors who had seen him um, and the um, police disciplinary authorities in Chicago. He wrote letters and, and said that he'd been beaten. All right. So for the people who are not familiar with Chicago, not familiar with Area 2, uh, you mentioned the Torture Commission. Uh, Chicago has a long and sordid history of cops torturing black men forcing confessions, uh, and uh, most folks are familiar with one particular infamous sergeant. I, I believe you're speaking of Commander John Birch, yeah. Yeah, Commander John Birch, yeah. Um, yeah, John Birch was a... He, he eventually rose to the rank of commander. He, throughout the 70s and 80s, um, there have been, of course, a lot of the facts are disputed, as, as they, they would be in cases like these, but there have been numerous investigations and, you know, reports, and he's generally understood to have been the ringleader of a group of officers who served under him who abused and tortured uh, suspects in, you know, in criminal cases. So, so, Klein... So, B Smith says Klein, is, is, he, is he saying Klein beat the confession out of him, or is he saying that Klein 
lied about him actually confessing. No, he didn't make any, uh, he didn't make, he's not made any allegation of physical abuse. Um, he has not made any allegation of physical abuse against uh, Phil Klein, but he has, um, am I still there, by the way? Yeah, yeah, you're here, you're here. Okay, good, sorry, I got an I had income call, my bad. Um, he's never said that Phil Klein abused him. Um, he says that his uh, that he was abused by other detectives who had who had uh, who had worked under uh, Commander Burge, um, and his 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 allegations against Phil Klein generally yeah. are that he uh, lied on the he lied in his testimony uh, against him. So this is uh, I mean again, uh, it, it just goes to show you uh, the the fundamental problems. We, that Chicago police, and when people always talk about, you know, you just had the, the mayor, you know, talk about some $20 million for a wellness fund because the cops and their low morale. And this man spent 33 years in prison. Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing to have happened to you. It's been a problem in Chicago for a very long time. I mean, the, the Chicago Police Department has a pretty well-established issue with wrongful convictions and it's not just the police department it's the you know it's prosecutors offices it's judges it's it's a holistic issue with the system uh it's 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 absolutely uh absolutely nonsensical and makes no sense whatsoever uh and so um um is so robert plans to sue the city he is suing the city yeah he's suing the city and so obviously um this uh can make a huge difference uh in uh, that case well, yeah, this was the his new filing was introduced uh, as part of that lawsuit, and the, the basically what's new about this is that he's alleging that uh, Klein uh, invented his you know allegations against Robert about the confession uh, at uh, both at his uh, suppression hearing about his confession and at the trial and even in some later testimony. Uh, just again, for folks out there, this is what we call another day for Chicago police. Uh, Dan, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Uh, I want to pull my panel now. Kelly Pathea, communication strategist, Michael Imhotep, host, African History Network show, Matt Manning, civil rights attorney. Matt, uh, again, this, this, uh, we don't have Matt yet. This happens, I mean, this is the thing over and over and over again, over and over and over again, we hear coming out of Chicago. Uh, Michael, you're not far, you're there in Detroit, and when we hear these right. examples, uh, and then people go, oh, you know, but, the, you know, that's, 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 you know, sort of one cop. No! Okay, when it keeps happening, hello, mm -hmm. it's called systemic problem. Right, systemic problems, especially in the uh, Chicago Police Department. And this is not a—I think the last count, I think I think there's like 16,000 officers in the Chicago Police Department, something like this. So I'm not saying all of them are guilty. But when you when you when you go study John Burge and you go study the 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 black ops detention site that they had in Chicago that where uh in Spencer Aikerman for the for the Guardian uh I think he was the one that broke this story a few a few years ago and it talked about how this was a detention center where certain suspects overwhelmingly African American men were taken they were beaten uh confessions were tortured out of them when their attorneys were trying to find where they are in the system they couldn't find them Things like this, and and and, and you know, you at the same time you had um, 
a few years ago, you had uh, about uh, a half a mil a half a billion dollars in police misconduct lawsuits that had to be paid out by the Chicago Police Department. The, it was about 105 police misconduct lawsuits before they had to pay to settle for the Laquan McDonald uh, police miscon misconduct lawsuit as well. So, and what's interesting in this case, I'm glad you had uh, Dan Hinkle on from um, Better uh, uh, Better Government uh, Reporting, Better Government um, Administration, or BGA, BetterGov.org. Uh, in the article here, it, it talks about how the filing that uh, Robert Smith's attorneys filed also includes attendance logs showing that Lieutenant Klein was off the day that Robert Smith allegedly confessed and multiple police reports were devoid of Lieutenant Klein's name as well. So, you know, hopefully Lieutenant Klein, if this is all accurate, is charged with perjury as well, and hopefully he goes to prison if the evidence uh, proves that uh, he lied uh, under oath also. Uh, this thing, Matt Manning, again, I, I keep telling people, I mean, when, first of all, if you're the city and you have to set up a torture commission, mm -hmm. Matt, we're talking about systemic problems. Uh, Chicago has had to pay out upwards of $40 million in reparations to individuals, black, who were beaten uh, with phone books, uh, who were forced confessions uh, by these Chicago cops who kept getting their pensions. I mean, two of those settlements came within the last four years. And I don't know if, if you mentioned this before, but what I found particularly troubling in this case is that the prosecutors actually uh, moved to have Mr. Smith's uh, conviction vacated. That's incredibly important because they would be the ones in the best position to determine whether, in fact, Mr. Smith was guilty. So the fact that the city is doubling down and adding this to the cadre of uh, settlements it's paid over the years is absurd, particularly in light of the uh, persuasive evidence that not only was Lieutenant Klein not there and not involved, but that there are systemic issues and that he may have perjured himself on four separate occasions. I mean, that's the, the crux of their lawsuit is that they should have a default judgment because if you lie and that lie is the underpinning for a lawsuit, then the Seventh Circuit has case law that says a judge can just default you out. And that's what's precisely what should happen here, considering the long history of police abuse. Uh, Kelly, uh, again, I, I love to hear these people who talk about back to blue. Okay. How about uh, back to black? I mean, that would be too much like right, because it's the black men who are victims in this case, black people in general who are victims of this uh, monstrosity, this tragedy that is a broken criminal justice system, specifically in Chicago. I mean, we don't have to get into just the the litany of cases and millions of dollars that have been spent trying to, you know, repair um, the damage um, that these victims have incurred. Um, I mean, that's what reparations are. It really means repair. It's to repair the person. Um, but for anyone to deny these allegations on the Chicago on behalf of the Chicago Police Department. I mean, the proof is in the pudding at this point. Granted, you do have to go to court, you have to prove things, yes. But at the same time, you know, the same article that uh, Michael was just referring to from bettergov.org, it said that the city had paid more than $27 million in fees to outside lawyers in Burge-related cases. That's one officer.
things that happened under one officer cost the city $27 million. And then taxpayers paid more than $80 million regarding settlements, reparations, and other costs tied to this one officer. So you're talking about well over $100 million regarding cases pertaining to something that happened under one officer. So I can only imagine how much the city would have to pay if every single officer who did something, you know, atrocious, which according to the history of Chicago is quite a few, how, like just how broke would Chicago be should all of their dirty laundry be aired out? Uh, this thing just ha it just keeps happening, and, and I love the people who uh, all of a sudden they complain about Black Lives Matter protesters, but it's amazing how quiet they get uh, when it comes to the multi-million dollar settlements and a person like Robert Smith spending 33 years in prison. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, this is what Philip Klein looks like. Show it again. This is the guy, and he became the top cop. No, you have the guys right, right. there in video playback. Come on. Thank you. That's, that's the top. He was the top cop. He mm -hmm. was the superintendent the Chicago Police Department. That right there is what you call shameful, shameful, shameful behavior by cops in this country. Uh, all right, folks, uh, let's go to our next story. Uh, I just, and again, you know, we, we, we go through this repeatedly when we're talking about uh, these officers, when we're talking about uh, the conduct of police officers, and uh, they just continue. Uh, all across the country. They continue uh, in Los Angeles. They continue in Chicago. They continue in St. Louis. We did a story yesterday of a cop in Kansas City, and it just goes on and on and on. And at some point, at some point, we're going to see changes happen uh, in this country, which also begs the question, where yet, Senator Tim Scott? What's the problem with the George Floyd Justice Act? All that talk, all that back and forth uh, that he was running his mouth about, oh, how we're going to see, we're going to do right by the families, nothing. And he is the one standing in the way, trying to blame Democrats. No, you can't blame Democrats for that one because you are standing in the way. And Republicans, again, love to tout police, and support the cops, and critical of defund the police. How about you stop funding lawsuits? How about you stop funding settlements? But no, they don't want to do that. They want to continue to play these games and then get mad at us for highlighting it, get mad at us for raising the attention, get mad at us when we then begin to show people exactly what is going on. And again, we're supposed to sit here and say, oh, well, you know what? It's just a few bad apples. No, it's not. This is endemic. This is systemic. It's happening far too many places in America. All right, folks, got to go to a break. Uh, we come back. Uh, we'll talk more about uh, a variety of stories, uh, including uh, HBCUs banding together in a transformation project. We'll talk about that. Uh, also, our Black and Missing of the Day. In addition, we'll talk to Pamela Brown, a black woman. Why they send the sister to jail for trying to vote? But you got these folks like the governor, the son of the governor of Virginia, who tried to vote in the wrong place twice and not arrested. Everything's all good. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network.
I was in the telephone booth on 63rd and 3rd Avenue. Felt my coins in and dialed the number. Mr. Parks, this is Richard Roundtree. Oh, uh, yeah, yes, yes. Um, well, you know, it, 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 it uh, looks like you got the role. I didn't know whether I'll go black. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, really? Uh, uh, okay, well, well, wait, 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 wait. Um, you can't tell anyone. Can I tell my parents? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm walking around town, and my fellow actors and models are saying, hey, you know what? Tree, I think uh, I might have gotten that role. <laughs> you hear this two or three different times. Right. Like the different people. Well, wait a minute. Was I dreaming that? Or... <laughs> then Gordon calls me up. I call Gordon, and he says, uh, we're having the press uh, announcing you are the chef. I get in the limo, and when I pull up his sword, he's, oh, Lord. what we used to call, I'm um, shitting in high cotton. Yes, in high cotton, <laughs> yes. I get out, and all the press is there, and the actors, and I walk in, and Gordon announces, yes, this is Richard Roundtree, and he's gonna play the character Shaft. Bishop T.D. Jake. What up, Lana Well, and you are watching Rolly Martin Unfiltered. Zynga Graham was last seen in Phoenix, Arizona on March 7th. The 17-year-old is 5 feet 8 inches tall, weighs 185 pounds with black hair and hazel eyes. Anyone with information about Zynga Graham should call the Phoenix, Arizona Police Department at 602-262-6151, 602-262-6151. Folks, hundreds of Ohio University faculty uh, members say they are ready to go on strike next week over complaints of unfair working conditions. Of course, uh, a couple days ago, several university faculty members, students, and alumni leaders rallied in support of the school's faculty as they, uh, they argued what is low pay for non-tenured full-time teaching faculty and adjunct professors. We had two of them on the show. They told us the university had until today to meet their demands or they would go on strike. We got word they are still in talks. We will keep you updated on the situation. Howard has 150 non-tenured, full-time, non-track full-time faculty uh, and more than 200 adjunct professors represented by the Service Employees International Union Local 500. Uh, folks, creating respectful and open world for natural hair, known as the Crown Act, passed the House today. Uh, the measure passed the Democratic-led House, 235 to 189. The bill seeks to protect against bias based on hair texture and protective styles, including locks, cornrows, twists, braids, uh, bantu knots, and afros. During the floor debate, Representative Ayanna Presley explained how black hair has a place in society. Today on the floor of the House of Representatives, the People's House. 
to declare that black girls with our braids, locks, afros, all forms of natural hairstyles, and yes, even our smooth, alopecian, bald heads belong everywhere. Today, we take an important step towards codifying this fact into law by passing the Crown Act legislation. I'm so proud to co-lead in partnership with Representatives Watson Coleman, Moore, Lee, and Omar. For too long, black girls have been discriminated against and criminalized for the hair that grows on our heads and the way we move through and show up in this world. In my home state, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, two twin sisters, Deanna and Maya, high school students, were disciplined for showing up with braids. They were given numerous detentions, kicked off the track team, banned from prom solely for their hairstyle. In their own words, these scholars and athletes were judged more for their heritage than their homework. No more. For those sisters and thousands of other students who face discrimination based on their hair, the Crown Act is for you. For recent graduates who fear they must change their hair or cut their locks to secure a job, the Crown Act is for you. For our elders who have faced and fought this racism for generations, the Crown Act is for you. Just yesterday, the Massachusetts State Legislature made history by passing similar legislation. By passing the Crown Act today, we affirm, say it loud, black is beautiful and so is our hair. Whether you are a student in a classroom, an employee in the workplace, or the next Supreme Court Justice or the Speaker Pro Tem, you deserve to show up as your full self, rocking your crown with your head held high. I urge a yes vote for every person who has been asked to shrink or to apologize simply for the beautiful way with which God made them. I yield back. The bill now heads to the Senate where Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey has sponsored the chamber's version of the bill. The thing that's interesting here, of course, uh, Kelly, is that when this first came up, they wanted to unanimous consent, uh, did not get two-thirds of the votes, but Republicans uh, uh, would move on that. But the nonsensical comments that we heard from the right, um, oh... Black folks, here are black people playing the victim again. We don't need a bill when it comes to hair. Then you had folks like uh, Burgess Owens, uh, when it first happened, uh, the black Republican out of Utah, uh, say, oh, this uh, business should have every right to tell people how to wear their hair. It's their business. And you make it sound like black people don't have businesses. I'm like, dude, you sound like a damn idiot. I mean, white people don't know what it's like to be discriminated against because of their hair. It's, it's just that plain and simple. But they, they damn sure not... know how to discriminate based upon hair. Exactly. You know, I can't tell you the amount of times I've had to, you know, suppress a panic attack because, you know, whether I'm, you know, getting interviewed for a job that I really like and I wasn't able to flat iron my hair that day or, you know, if I'm going somewhere, should I have, can I wear it out? Can do I have to have it in a ponytail? Do I need a wig? What have you? And white people do not understand the stress of having to modify themselves in order to be accepted in the world as they are. Black women only know how to do that, you know? So this this legislation is incredibly powerful um, and also kind of bittersweet because at the same time, you are not your hair. You know, I did not, my hair did not get me my college degree. My hair did not get me my job. My hair did not get me into the rooms that I have been in. However, it has 
kept me out of rooms because of other people's biases. <clears throat> so this legislation will help prevent stuff like that and actually take into account the wholeness of black women and other um, women of color who have curly hair or hair that is just not, frankly, white hair. Because it's not even good or bad hair. It's either white hair or not white hair. Check this and, out. Uh, he, and that is the, that's the frustration of it. Here are two white men on the floor of the House with no hair uh, discussing the Crown Act. Listen. Just as good a human being and just and I'm just as good a human being and just as smart and just as effective and just as caring with or without hair. And the fact is, it's discrimination and it's ignorance. And African-Americans have been discriminated against in many ways because of their, their hairstyle. It's a natural thing for African-Americans and they should not be penalized in their workplace, in sports, in school, or in any other ways. So I stand here for the Crown Act. It was originally introduced, I think, by Cedric Richmond. And I joined with him on the Judiciary Committee to support it. I'd seen problems in Tennessee when I was a state senator and supported bills there to protect people who wore braids and whatever. So I hope the people will rise up, vote yes, and understanding of other people and think beyond themselves. And I'm just real, as good a human being and just as smart. Uh, uh, Matt, uh, how if, if people want to know Republicans don't give a damn about black people, 189 voted against 189 voted against i don't really know what to say beyond they know this is an issue and they don't care jim jordan saying i care about inflation and gas prices and all these other things that are important but this is a perennial <laughs> issue we keep hearing cases around the country of kids especially being discriminated against because of their hair what I think is important is Steny Hoyer says, look, the military last year thought it was appropriate enough to allow people to wear uh, these hairstyles because we don't want discrimination there. So the idea that that shouldn't be uh, expanded to the American people at large is absurd, particularly where we continue seeing high-profile cases where especially young people are being discriminated against for uh, hair that is synonymous with their heritage. And that's the thing here. Look, this is a dog whistle, right? Because white people aren't being um, discriminated against for their hairstyles, by and large, the way black people are. So to to uh, go along with what Al Green said, the congressman, you know, the idea that this is not what the American people want excludes black people from the American people. And, the, and black people are, unfortunately, continuing to be discriminated against because of our hairstyles. So I think the Republicans don't care. They're signaling that to us. Um, and I think that the fact that this continues happening you know, belies why it should be addressed through legislation. So and I'm glad if, they've done so. And if you want to see dumbasses, uh, let's see, look at the dumbasses in the White House uh, press corps. This literally, this literally was a question uh, that was asked today by one of these idiots in the White House press corps. Listen to this. About that. And then I have, like, a fun Friday question. Okay. okay. <laughs> the House passed the Crown Act, which bans discrimination based on hairstyle. Mm -hmm. Is this something the administration supports? Would they sign it into law if the Senate passed it? I have seen that. I have not talked to our legislative team about it. I'm happy to do that, and we'll see if we can get you a fun, fun, fun Friday answer back. Go ahead. About see, Roland, this... This is this is an attack on white standards of beauty. And this and, and, and you have this is why so many Republicans voted against it, including re black Republicans who think white like Burgess Owens, former NFL player. He could have CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. 
He may be somehow related to Herschel Walker. I wouldn't be surprised. Both of them dumb as hell, okay? Both of them are uh, uh, white supremacy <coughs> through ventriloquism, as uh, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson would say. But if you... It, it, this is also an economic issue, okay? Because what happens is discriminating against African-Americans, men or women, based upon the type of hairstyles, natural hairstyles, braids, things like this, this also helps to lock us out of certain jobs, certain positions, things like this. So this is also an economic issue. And if you look at what Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman of New Jersey said uh, today, she said, natural black hair is often deemed, quote-unquote, unprofessional simply because it does not conform to white beauty standards, okay? In fact, uh, uh, in fact uh, hold that right there. We're going to okay. play her comments. Go. Oh, well, I was just going to finish. No, 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 hold on. Oh, of I'm those sorry. individuals, okay. whether my colleagues on the other side recognize it or not, are discriminated against as children in school, as adults who are trying to get jobs, as individuals who are trying to get housing, of individuals who simply want access to affordable uh, to uh, public accommodations and to be beneficiaries of federally funded programs. And why are they denied? these opportunities because there are folks in this society who get to make those decisions who think because your hair is kinky, it is braided, it is in knots, or it is not straight and blonde and light brown, that you somehow are not worthy of access to those issues. Well, that's discrimination. There is no logical reason that anyone should be discriminated against on any level because of the texture of their hair or the style of their hair. This bill is vitally important. It is important to the young girls and the young boys who have to cut their hair in the middle of a uh, wrestling match in front of everyone because some white referee says that your hair is inappropriate to, to uh, engage in your match. That young man engaged in his match and he won it. It's inappropriate for our girls to be sent home disciplined or pushed out simply because they've got braids in their hair. And it doggone sure is discriminatory to deny someone employment, housing, or public accommodations because of the way they're wearing their hair. That's why we're standing here today. It is unfortunate that we have to, but we do. And with that in mind, I thank the chairman of the Judiciary Committee for giving me this opportunity to speak on behalf of a bill that I think is vitally important, that represents movement and understanding in the 21st century what discrimination can look like and what it can do to people. That was Congresswoman uh, Bonnie Coleman uh, of uh, New Jersey. Bonnie Watsi Coleman. Uh, Mike, go ahead. Right. You know, she she said it perfectly, brother. And 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 I quote, you know, our Grandmaster Scholar Warrior, Dr. Wade Nobles, power is the ability to define and shape reality and have other people accept your definition of reality as if it were their own. And these these Republicans, these white Republicans and their Negro allies in, in the House saw their power slipping away. And that's what this is about. This is this is this is a powerful bill, and we have to push this through the Senate as well. Well, but this is this is an example of how elections have consequences, also. Well, and, an and, and again, the th the thing here that people don't understand, and black people, we get it. But what you got is you got these white folks, Kelly, who have a, a, a clue, no clue. I remember several years ago uh, going to the EEOC website 
And there was a black woman who had applied to be a psychiatrist uh, at a VA hospital in Virginia. Impeccable credentials. Okay, while the committee, when she left the room, the white man on the committee, mm, I'm not so sure about her hairstyle. She didn't get the job. She eventually sued, won. They had to pay, ba they had to pay back wages and to give her the job. So it wasn't the resume. It wasn't the expertise. It wasn't the education. He did not like her hairstyle. And it, cost, and it cost taxpayers. And that's my thing. All of that money could have been with taxpayers and to the appropriated, um, you know, appropriately, <clears throat> as opposed to going to this woman who, frankly, was minding her business and just trying to do her job. So all of this goes back to, frankly, just minding your business and stop, you know, projecting what you think standard is, what you think appropriate is, especially when you don't have the cultural wherewithal and nuance and knowledge to, to really decipher exactly how important a Black woman's hair is. You know, that is a cultural thing. That is a, an ancestral thing. And for you to not understand that, that's okay. But just mind your business in doing so. Let me wear my hair the way that I want to. Let me express myself through my hair as I want to. Because again, like I said before, my profession has nothing to do with my hairstyle. My hairstyle did not get me into my profession. My hairstyle is not going to help you in, in, in the work that I do. But my skill set will, you know, my networking will, everything else besides my hair, frankly, will. So again, it's a matter of minding your business and stop projecting your insecurities onto other people. And, of course, um, sitting in the chair um, holding the gavel today was Congresswoman Gwen Moore of Wisconsin, uh, appropriately, uh, rocking her natural hair uh, as she uh, gaveled the bill. Watch this. On this vote, the yeas are 235 and the nays are 189. With no one answering present, res the respecting, the creating a respectful and open world for Natural Hair Act is passed. Without objection, a motion to reconsider is laid on the table. Well, that was certainly uh, apropos, um, Matt, as a uh, civil rights attorney. Uh, when you listen to the different members uh, stand up and they talked about different cases, when you listen to uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of uh, Massachusetts talk about uh, what uh, black girls and black boys have had to go through. We all remember uh, that, um, uh, that video, uh, we all remember that video, if you will, of the brother who was a wrestler, where the referee mm -hmm. said, oh, unless you cut his hair, he's going to lose the match. Not a damn thing to do with his physical ability. Nothing to do with physical ability, but it was really just about his hair. That is the level of hatred that you see. And somebody posted this. If you go to my computer, uh, they actually posted. They wanted to know all of the people <coughs> uh, who voted uh, nay. Uh, and, of course, mm -hmm. it's Republican. So when you go down this list, so when y'all see this right here, uh, when you go down this list, uh, when you see when you see all of these nays here, uh, these are uh, Republicans. Uh, you know, I see Kay Granger, the former mayor of Fort Worth, uh, on here. 
Uh, I see uh, Dan Crenshaw of Texas, Texas Hal Rogers, Texas. Uh, Chip Roy. Uh, it goes Mo Brooks of Alabama, all these Republicans. And so I, I just want people that fool Louis Gomer, uh, Ronnie Jackson, that fool uh, Daryl, that fool uh, from um, uh, uh, Texas, used to be uh, Trump's doctor. Uh, you see his name on here as well. I mean, y'all need to see, it, it, again, if y'all, when all these black Republicans roll up in here and we talk about how the Republican Party don't like black people, Dara mm -hmm. Issa's name uh, is on here. Steve Scalise voted against. Maria Salazar voted against. Just so y'all clear, Andy Biggs of Alabama, you saw his name <laughs> voting against. 189 voted against. So when you hear us say the black, black Republic, the Republican Party don't give a damn about black people, this bill is a perfect example, Matt. Yep, it's part and parcel with what they do in every aspect and when it comes to dealing with black Americans, dealing with race and dealing with historical inequities. I mean, look, after my first year of law school, I cut my locks because I was afraid I wouldn't get a job. And I've regretted it ever since. But the fact that I even had to think about that is proof positive that this is a seminal issue and an issue that continues coming up. And it's an issue that we know um, we've seen play out on the national scale. I mean, the fact that this young man is having to cut his hair to compete in a wrestling match that he ultimately wins shows that the prowess is in, or rather, he has the prowess to win. It's not about his hair. So Republicans keep telling us that, um, and sometimes we don't listen, but this is another thing that shows that uh, they don't care. And in fact, one of the things that I think some of the opponents were saying is that, oh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act covers this, but we know we know that it's not strong enough because we need specific legislation considering how often this happens and how often we're having to discuss these issues, protect, particularly with young people who are being discriminated against. Again, um, hey, you know, when, when we look at, again, who votes, who doesn't, mm -hmm. all y'all folks who say, man, this stuff don't matter, uh, it does matter. Because here's the other piece. If Democrats right. did, listen to me, folks, clearly, if Democrats did not control the U.S. House, this bill does not get passed. Now the right. question is, are we going to see 10 Republicans have the guts to support this bill, and then will Democrats actually go ahead and pass it uh, by breaking the filibuster? That's what we'll see. Michael, go ahead. Uh, very quickly, uh, I wanted to say uh, quickly two things. I encourage everybody to go to congress.gov, congress.gov. Look up these bills, like the Crown Act, because at congress.gov, you can see who voted for the bills and who voted against the bills. If your member of the House keeps voting for bills that you advocate for, you got to rally to vote them back into office. If your member of the House and Senate keep voting against bills that you advocate for, regardless of whether they're Democrats or Republicans, you got to vote them out of office. And then you mentioned Chip Roy at Texas. Chip Roy also voted against, he was one of the three Republicans in the House who voted against the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill as well. Okay? And, and when you go read Chip Roy's statements, and, we, and BlackAmericaWeb.com has an article about this, he talked about uh, how uh, lynching is a metaphor for justice. He's from Texas. He talked about how lynching is a metaphor for justice. These are some sick people that have to be dealt with and voted out of office. Absolutely. And so, uh, and uh, again, we were sitting here looking. Uh, if you are in North Carolina and you live in the 7th District, this guy right here, mm -hmm. remember Congress? He voted against that. I keep telling y'all, if, if the Republicans out there voting against black folks, throw them out. All right, folks. Uh, 
give us a call, please. If you want to weigh in uh, on this, uh, phone lines are open, 202-890-1199, 202-890-1199. Members of our Bring the Funk fan club are able uh, to uh, comment uh, on issues of the day. Again, the number to call is 202-890-1199. Your thoughts about the Crown Act, please give us a call. All right, folks, got to go to a break. We'll be back on Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. On the next A Balanced Life, as we grind down to the end of another long winter, it's easy to slip out of balance and into the foggy doldrums. On the next A Balanced Life, ways to push through the gray days until the warm days of spring arrive. Join me, Dr. Jackie, on A Balanced Life on Black Star Network. about the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives, and we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Godfrey, and you're watching... Roland Martin Unfiltered, and while he's doing Unfiltered, I'm practicing the wobble. The FBI is renewing calls for tips surrounding the death of Jelani Day. The FBI wants to remind the public about the $10,000 reward for information related to the Illinois State University graduate student's death. Of course, Day was reported missing on August 25th after he failed to reply to messages from his family and a professor. His car was found a day later and his body was discovered on September 4th, floating in the Illinois River. And so the FBI, again, uh, please give them a call if you have any information regarding uh, Jelani Day. Uh, all right, folks, uh, we also uh, are going to uh, take your phone calls. Again, if you want to give us a call, your thoughts on the Crown Act, 
passing the house 202-890-1199 202-890-1199 donald white calling from new jersey donald you're on roller martin unfiltered what's up Got guys why are we going to black come on thank you thank you all right go to the phone lines donald what's on your mind Donald, can you hear me, Donald? All right, you guys, uh, let me know. I'm going to do this BLM story. You guys, uh, let me know what's happening with the audio lines. Uh, get this fixed, all right? Uh, folks, two Boston activists are facing criminal charges for allegedly using their nonprofit for personal gain. Uh, a federal grand jury indicted activist Monica Cannon Grant and her husband Clark Grant with wire fraud, mail fraud, conspiracy, and making false statements to a mortgage lending business, uh, to, first of all, uh, to a mortgage lending business. All right, now the 18 count indictment alleges that between 2017 and 2021, Cannon Grant applied for numerous public and private grants and received donations to her nonprofit, but used that money for personal expenses. The couple founded Violence in Boston in 2017 to reduce violence and raise social awareness and racial equ equity in Boston. Now, when we saw this story, the folks at the, at, uh, the Root say it called them BLM activists. But one of the groups that actually provided them funding was the Black Lives Matter chapter there in uh, Massachusetts. So they're not BLM activists. They have their own organization. This is what happens when the right wants to slap BLM on anything, okay? Uh, the thing here, uh, uh, that what we're dealing with here, uh, we've seen this many times before, Matt, that is people have to understand when, you, when it comes to grants, especially you're getting federal grants, you're dealing with federal dollars, federal crimes. Uh, and so, again, this is, uh, these are allegations. Uh, they are innocent until proven guilty. This is why we encourage folks to be very, when you start applying for grants, be very particular in terms of how they're used because folks are always watching, especially for black activists. We can't hear Matt. Guys, y'all got to fix the audio issues. What's going on? Matt, are you on mute or is it on our end? I, there we I go. I can hear you. There we go. You hear me? Okay. I, I would say in addition to that, Roland, what I would add is you have to be particularly fastidious if you have nonprofit status. Because when you have a nonprofit, there are a lot of rules that apply to that. So not only be, be very careful and make sure you have great... Um, you know, record keeping when you have a grant that you receive, but also if you have a nonprofit, you have to make sure you adhere to all the rules because the IRS and the feds will be watching that to make sure you're doing the right thing. So there are unfortunately a lot of people who, who have issues with this and get caught up behind this. And the fact that there's an 18 count um, indictment is is concerning because that means they, they believe they found some evidence, but these are just allegations and it's yet to pro be proven in court. So We'll see what happens with that. Uh, it's, it's always uh, something that uh, folks, again, look, get you, account get you accountants, get you folks, set up your business practices. Because again, if you are activists, I remember uh, Michael during, uh, after, the, um, um, in, in, after the Michael Brown uh, case, that I, there were a number of activists who I was talking to and folks were soliciting funds uh, on social media and I hit them up and I said, hey, don't do that. I right. said, run that through a fiscal agent. 
I said, have every, I said, be sure everything is accounted for. I said, because remember, they can hit you on tax charges uh, in, terms right. of, in terms of what you owe. Folks, look, activists got always got to be careful. They are trying to take down activists. You got to protect yourself. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times you have activists, not knowing all the particulars here in this case, but a lot of times you have activists who mean well and try to do the right thing, but don't understand uh, federal laws when it comes to accepting donations for organizations or may not fully understand like 501c3 regulations, things like that. And they end up getting caught up. So you have you want to get a uh, CPA, get a tax accountant and really understand these laws um, because, I mean, this this can take down an organization. So, you know, you know this is uh, hopefully, hopefully the charges are not true here, but, you know, this, this is why you have to be careful. All right, let's see if we go back to the phone lines. Donald White from New Jersey. Donald, are you there? Hey, Brother Roller, what's going on? I'm here. All right, there we go. What's on your mind? Hey, look, just like we've been talking talking for the last 12 years, black people are tired. Uh, we tired of hearing the excuses. We tired of asking. And bottom line, all they know is violence. So we gonna have to hit them back the only way we know how. April first, I'm going gun shopping. Bottom line. Okay, you're gonna go gun shopping, and what you're gonna do is start shooting white folks. Come at me, I'm taking you out before you get me. Well, well, first of all, if somebody comes at you, that's self-defense. You going at somebody else unprovoked, that's... We don't get no self-defense. No, 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 no. We don't get no self-defense. Donald, Donald, let me be real clear. If you go after somebody unprovoked, they will get you for murder. Now, if someone comes... No, no, no. I ain't trying to be like the little white boy that, that came out with his little rifle and got off. So what are you saying? I'm just saying, they come at... If they... If, look... They gonna stop killing our kids. They gonna stop killing our black men. Yeah, you you have a, you, you have a Second Amendment right uh, to bear arms. But what I'm saying is, if someone if someone comes after you, that is self defense. If it, if someone comes if someone is not coming after you, it's unprovoked. Uh, yeah, they will go after you for murder. So uh, no, I I am never going to advocate uh, vigilante justice. Uh, but again, you do have a legal right to self defense. Stay in your ground. But it has to be that. All right? Don, yes, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Let's go to Karen. No problem, brother. Karen Morella. Karen Morella, she's calling from Texas. Karen, you're on Roller Martin Unfiltered. What's on your mind? Well, yes, Mr. Barton. It's Morant. M-I-R-A-N-T. Sorry about that. Uh, I have it was uh, misspelled here, but it's all good. Go ahead. Yes, sir. I am in Angleton, Texas, 50 miles outside of your city of Easton. I have a question regarding the Crown Act that was uh, introduced in the Cal state of California by my childhood friend, Holly Mitchell. Yep. But regarding the federal act, would Mr. Manning, I have a question for Mr. Man Attorney Manning. Yep, go ahead. Could Bogle or Taylor try to reverse it in their favor if they run across a D.C. hairstylist who decides, uh-uh, girlfriend, you ain't rocking. We, we're not going to do your hair, you know, we're not going to provide that service for you. So Could they try so, to so, come so, back so, so you, Okay, so your question to Maddie is, can somebody refuse to do the hair of someone who comes into their shop? Not, well, well yeah, yeah. 
But I'm just saying, if it's like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Bober decide they're going to go to a sister stylist, and oh, the God. stylist... Okay, so if Lauren Bobert or Marjorie Taylor Greene go to a stylist and you're asking, can the stylist say, I will not do your hair? Correct. Okay, Matt? I, honestly, I'm not sure of the regulations everywhere. I would say generally a proprietor has the ability to refuse service under certain circumstances. So, for instance, if they're there causing a disturbance or if they come in and say, I demand you do my hair for XYZ reason, and the stylist either feels unsafe or feels there's some reason they want to put them out of the shop, I don't think they can compel them to do their hair, if that's the question. I think the crux of this but, is but, more... But it's also, if you don't, also, if you don't know how to do that style of hair... Yeah, that was, that was I mean, look, my point. It's, it's some white folks yeah. can't, can't do Kelly hair. And, <laughs> and they should be able to... They should say, hey, I can't do your hair. That's true. Yeah, that was, that's that, true. They should, be my they should point. say that. Yeah, but in terms of a private business owner being able to refuse somebody, I mean, there are certain circumstances under which they can do that. I don't think they're compelled to do their hair. I think this is more about uh, discrimination and things like, for instance, you know, kids competing in a, a school event who are being discriminated against because of the style of their hair. I think that's what this really seeks to uh, prevent. I got you. Karen, I appreciate it. Thank you I, so very much. I got, I got that part. I just wanted to see if someone would, would try to throw it back at us. Well, again, uh, first of all, we are, we've already seen the cases where you've had bakers refuse uh, to bake cakes uh, for folks who are gay. That's gone, exactly. That, that's gone that's exactly Court, what I was thinking. But, but, but that's not what the Crown Act actually deals with. So, uh, Karen, I appreciate your phone call. Thank you so very much. Uh, folks, we're going to take more of your phone calls uh, in the show, so please give us a call. Show the number again, please, to uh, call if you want to uh, get your phone call in to comment, not just on the Crown Act, but also any of the stories that we're talking about uh, today. You know, we take phone calls on Friday. Uh, pull the number up, please. 202-890-1199. 202-890-1199. Give us a call. We've got to go to break. We come back. We're going to talk with the sister of Tennessee uh, who went to jail for trying to vote. She was released, but are they going to try her again? We'll talk with Pamela Brown next on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. in the telephone booth on 63rd and 3rd Avenue. Brought my coins in and 
dial the number. Mr. Parks, this is Richard Roundtree. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. Um, well, you know, it, 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 it uh, looks like you got the role. I didn't know whether I'll go black. Oh, really? Okay, wait, wait, wait. You can't tell anyone. Can I tell my parents? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm walking around town and my fellow actors is, and models are saying, hey, you know what? Tree, I think uh, I might have gotten that role. <laughs> you hear this two or three different times. Right. Like, did he come? Well, wait a minute. Was I dreaming that? Or... <laughs> then Gordon calls me up. I call Gordon and he says, uh, we're having the press uh, announcing you are the chef. I get in the limo and when I pull up and saw this, oh, Lord. What we used to call um shitting in high cotton. Yes, in high cotton. <laughs> yes. I get out, and all the press is there and the actors, and I walk in and Gordon announces, Yes, this is Richard Roundtree, and he's gonna play the character Shaft. Oh, magic. Everybody, this is Jonathan Nelson. Hi, this is Cheryl Lee Ralph, and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Folks, you're watching on YouTube and Facebook, hit those like buttons and the share buttons, okay? Uh, we had 333 uh, likes on YouTube. We should easily be at 1,000 by the end of this show. So uh, it's more than 1,000 of y'all watching right now. So hit the like button right now, okay? Do that. Also, please download the Black Star Network app. Our goal is to get 50,000 downloads. Folks, uh, you can go to uh, download to your Apple phone, your Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, uh, Xbox One, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV as well. Uh, and so again, you can watch the show uh, right there on all of those platforms. And again, you, you want to support what we do? Uh, we appreciate uh, you joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Our goal is very simple, is to get 20,000 of our fans uh, contributing at least 50 bucks each a year. That's $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day. That will raise about a million dollars to allow us to fund our um, uh, staff and the things that we go cover all across this country. Uh, we don't have millionaires and billionaires uh, funding us and providing resources to us. And so this really is about us being able uh, to control our narrative, control our story, and to be able to provide you the kind of content you see every single day with this show, uh, of course, two hours a day, in addition to our five shows on the Black Star Network app. And so Cash App is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. You can send a check or money order to P.O. Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037. Again, P.O. Box 
57196, Washington, D.C., 20037. Shout out to uh, Montre Jones, uh, who gave uh, during the show. Uh, and let's see here. I got a few others in here, so I'm going through, uh, trying to give them a shout out uh, as well. And so uh, I'll do that in a second. So again, if you uh, give during the show, I'll give you a shout out uh, before we get off the air. All right, folks, uh, let's talk about uh, this next story. A California legal team, they're pushing for Tennessee officials to drop the charges against activist uh, Pamela Moses, who goes by P. Moses. Now, Moses was granted a new trial last month, and she was sentenced to six years in prison after a jury found the activist knowingly falsified information on a voting document. Now, Moses' lawyers say with the new evidence entered into court records, a jury would almost certainly find Moses innocent. We're now joined by Pete Moses from North Memphis, as well as her legal counsel, Rodney S. Diggs and James A. Bryant, both out of Los Angeles. Glad to have you here. And so, uh, first and foremost, uh, so uh, lay out the legal strategy, uh, Rodney and James, that you have for P. Moses to get these prosecutors to back off trying to retry her. Sure. Uh, thank you, Roland. At the moment, what we're doing is we're asking and actually demanding that the DA dismiss all charges against Pamela Moses. Um, should the DA not want to do that and try to move forward with the new trial, which Ms. Moses should not sit through again, then we're asking that a special prosecution take place to review the evidence and go from there. But at this moment, the first step is to have the charges against Ms. Moses dismissed. Um, this obviously uh, has been uh, very difficult for you, uh, P. Moses, uh, because uh, and, and so walk folks through people. They may have read about the story. They have heard us do it before. So walk us through what happened here that got us to this point. Well, um, in 2019, I was arrested at the Chicago O'Hare Airport. Um, didn't know what was going on. I was in customs and they told me that I was a fugitive of justice. And I was somewhat confused because, you know, I've been in trouble before, but I had never been listed as a fugitive. And they couldn't tell me why. I just had to go with them. And it just felt really weird. And when the Chicago police informed me that I had charges out of Shelby County, I, I told them, well, I just flew out of there if, you know, oh, two weeks prior or a week prior, if I was a fugitive, I don't think that the airport would have allowed me to do that. But they took me and they put me in the Cook County Jail. I think I was right across the street from R. Kelly and other, you know, notorious inmates that were being housed in this, his, this historical jail. And I was kept there for a number of days. And then finally, um, I was taken to court and I appeared before a black judge who um, somewhat wanted to know if I wanted to waive extradition or not. And he said if I didn't, that they would get a governor's warrant to have me transported. And I was just somewhat confused because getting off of a, you know, a flight like that, you know, and being stopped is just within itself is traumatic, but to then be thrown in jail and not know what it's about or what it's for, it just really, it really did something to me. But, you know, God got me through that situation. 
And after I was held in jail, they picked me up and they, in a white van, a contracted employees for Arkansas picked me up in a white van and they rode me around um, 18 different states for four days, picking up different inmates, dropping them off. And so I got a very good look of how the states human do human trafficking, but they call it fugitives. And, you know, some of the people may have been fugitives, but I wasn't charged with a, an offense of violence. I, in fact, I didn't even know what I had been charged with. I just knew I had charges out of Shelby County. And when I finally got back, you know, after riding around all these states, um, picking up inmates, I was able to then, you know, post bond after a couple of days of being in the Shelby County Jail East. And it was, you know, told to me that I had all these illegal charges for surrounding voting. And, you know, I was just grateful to get out and I remained out for some time. And uh, the lawyer that I had uh, retained originally, he um, he had got in some type of trouble and so he couldn't represent me. And the judge appointed me this new lawyer because I spent all my money on bail and, uh, and the previous lawyer. So he appointed me this lawyer who at, at the time I was okay with because I thought he would, you know, could easily get this taken care of. But I later found out that, you know, he wasn't working for my best interest. He was just trying to basically get it over with the best way he could, which was to make me plead guilty to something that I did not do. And so because I rejected their uh, pleas, the judge put me on the bench and told me that if I didn't take a plea, I would be facing 42 years in prison. And I said, okay, well, I'm definitely, you know, going to have to go to trial on this if I'm facing that much. And then they, you know, did a series of offers trying to get me to take a plea. But when I would ask the lawyer as well as the prosecutor, because I had several conversations with the assistant attorney, assistant district attorney, and I would say, okay, what did I do? And they never could tell me. They just wanted me to take this plea. And I was like, you know, I can't do that because the same um, district attorney that was handling this matter had also handled the previous matter, which was filed way before this indictment, which was to get a full restoration to get, like, my gun rights, certificate of uh, employability, you know, because as a felon, it's very difficult to get a job. But if you get a certificate of employability, you're able to then work. So you have to go through a legal process to do that, which I did do. And it was during that um, filing that triggered all this, oh, she's trying to become normal again. She wants her rights back. She wants to run for public office. She wants to do this. Oh, we can't let that happen. And they just then decided to April, that petition was filed, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, the six months later, this indictment came out. And so it was just very difficult even understanding what I had did. But once we finally got to the gist of it, 12 of the 14 counts were dismissed um, by the district attorney's office because they were basically duplicate charges. They hit they, you with 14 counts? 
14 counts. It was 14 counts originally on the indictment. And that was why they thought I should plead guilty. But, you know, I know you're talking about this case, but I can't talk about this case without talking about how we got to here. The case that put me in this situation, it had 10 counts. And I did plead guilty to those charges, not because I was innocent, but like most people, I plea bargained to get the situation over with because there was not necessarily guilt on my part, but it was like fighting a, a, a losing battle, trying to discredit a, a, an attorney and a judge who had made some sort of allegations. Well, at the time, I thought the judge had made them, and I later found out that the judge, who, whose name was Phyllis Gardner, she did not formally make these allegations against me. She gave a statement, but she didn't give them in a criminal uh, forum. She gave them in a quasi-civil forum. She was trying to basically stop me from talking about her on Facebook. And she was granted that order of protection, but I appealed it. And after I appealed it later, she did, you know, uh, withdraw the order of protection voluntarily. She dismissed it, but that was after I had already pled guilty to all this other stuff. But the judge did, didn't ever call the police she never called the sheriff and said, hey, I want to press charges against Ms. Moses. She basically had an ethics complaint against her. And the ethics uh, attorney, Virginia Bozeman, she contacted the district attorney and made all these allegations against me. And so because I did, you know, say stuff about her on Facebook, I didn't threaten her or stalk her and all the things that they said. But I did say that they were racist and, you know, that people shouldn't vote for her and that they should bring civil rights charges against her because I did do that. You know, I just, I went ahead and pled guilty to this because at the time I didn't have any money. I was being held on a $500,000 bond and that was the only way I could get out. And so I pled guilty to those charges. I served my time. I tried to re-enter into society like anyone else who had served their time. The only thing, you know, that was left were the misdemeanor charges, which were separate from that, which have nothing to do with voting. But I went through the process. I went to the um, to the judge, asked him to say my time was over. He said it wasn't over. But mind you, the judge that I went to to say that my time was over was not the original sentencing judge. He was a special judge that had been brought in after the Tennessee Supreme Court appointed him after every judge, I think maybe 20 judges or somewhere, every judge in the 30th District of Tennessee refused to hear my case. And the judge who sentenced me, he refused to do anything else with the case because I think he realized that he had made a mistake. So he, he just didn't want anything else to do with the case. So the judge that they appointed, Judge, um, judge Acree, a very nice judge out of Diesberg, he was basing his decision on the transcripts and the judgment sheets, which were unclear. So, you know, the defendant is never right in, in Memphis. The defendant is always wrong. You know, they're never going to side with the defendant. So he basically said, you're still on probation, but he never clarified what type of probation that I was on. But the Department of Correction, who is in charge of uh, calculation, and I believe you had Dr. Anya Wu, my other attorney, who who's, who was representing me zealously in the sentence hearing. He he tried to you know explain that to this new judge that Miss Moses 
went to the right place. This is the keeper of the records um, as far as the tabulation. And they said that she was not on uh, probation anymore. In fact, they signed off on my certificate for voter restoration, and that's how this came about. But one thing that was left out that Dr. Anyawu didn't know, and I didn't know either, and my new attorneys just found out, and it was a zealous reporter at The Guardian who located the document, the Department of Corrections had conducted their own internal investigation in regards to this matter two or three days after it allegedly happened, and they determined that there was no crime or any, you know, thing that I had did wrong. They they said, in fact, I had sat there for an hour waiting, you know, for them to verify the information in which I was seeking clarification on. And they described the um, supervisor to be negligent. And I, I don't agree with that. But the Department of Corrections basically did not say I did anything wrong because they have the ability to arrest people right then and there if some type of violation has occurred, and they did not do that. But so, somehow the district attorney indicted me for 14. So I am absolutely confused, Rodney and James. This is a whole lot to do Yeah. over trying to vote. Exactly. This, Trying to vote. This this this, this 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 reminds me of the Crystal case out of Texas where these white Republicans like, yeah, we're gonna make an example out of you, black woman. That's what this sounds mm -hmm. like. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. And and I think what's important, uh, Roland, it's always always a pleasure to see you. What's important for Ms. Moses is this. She did everything right. She took all the proper steps. She went into court in July. She requested that the court give her clarity. The court actually didn't end up giving her clarity. They just said she's still on probation. They didn't decide whether it was misdemeanor probation or felony probation. And that's a very important thing, because if you are under active probation um, in the state of Memphis for a felony, you can't vote. However, it was not clear whether it was a misdemeanor or or whether it was a felony that she was on probation for. And what they said during this court transcript that we finally got our hands on was this. Both the judge and the prosecutor agreed that it was the Department of Corrections who actually makes the proper calculation for how long one is on probation. And because of that, and because there was no clarity in this hearing, just two months later, Ms. Moses does the right thing. She goes down to the Department of Corrections to get clarity from this supervisor who spent over an hour researching and trying to decide what happened and whether or not she was still on felony probation. And at the end of the day, he specifically stamped on this particular document, you have the ability to have your rights restored. And this was after going through computers, going through the data system, making phone calls to his, his higher-ups, and they made that conclusion. And with this one document, Ms. Moses, who only wanted her her rights as an American back, she went down and she filed that document. And guess what? That document that she didn't even prepare, that she didn't stamp, Shelby County convicted her of submitting a fraudulent document, knowingly submitting a fraudulent document. And that was absolutely the travesty here. She had nothing to do with that. And that's the only charge they can hold her with. And, and, and Rowan, six years 
Six years, you have people who have stormed the Capitol, beaten police, and they can't even get more than a couple weeks in jail. And they were going to take Ms. Moses and make her sit in jail for six years for something that she relied on based upon not only the judge, the prosecutor, but also the Department of Corrections. And that's what's wrong. And that's what we will fight. Uh, it, uh, Matt or, or Michael, any questions uh, for the two attorneys and P. Moses? Uh, I do have a question. Oh, go ahead. Uh, Matt Manning go first, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, well, my question for you all is, is this. Is there not a basis for a dismissal for this case on, on the standpoint of prosecutorial misconduct? Because what frustrates me beyond the gross miscarriage of justice here is the fact that the state had in its possession mitigating evidence and actually evidence that shows Ms. Moses' innocence, right? So she was prosecuted without all the evidence to show her innocence, and the uh, state is the one that has the sole duty to prove the case against her. So it seems to me there should be a basis for that, but I don't practice in Tennessee and I don't know the law there. Is that something that y'all have uh, considered? And if it's not something that's applicable, um, why is that the case? Well, the district attorney at this point has said that they weren't aware that this document existed. They have been very clear on that. They said that it was somehow in the personnel file of this particular individual, and the Department of Corrections had not delivered that particular document to them. And so even though it is part of what we call a Brady violation, this, regardless of whether or not the district attorney was aware of it, um, all evidence exactly. that is within the state's, state's file, they have a duty to turn, turn those documents over. And again, that's why a new motion or the motion for new trial was granted on that particular situation. However, we haven't really, because of the stance of the district attorney saying that, they've tried to make it clear, we didn't know about this document. We had no clue. It's not on us. It's the Department of Corrections. We're trying to get to the bottom of that. But again, we, you absolutely uh, better believe that we are looking into this Brady violation because nonetheless, you have a duty regardless to turn over any evidence that could exonerate an individual um, or would be supportive of a potential not guilty verdict. So yes, I mean, we're looking into that and those are things that we're discussing amongst our team. And if I may, Roland, very yeah. quickly, it's common, it's common for prosecutors to contact witnesses in a situation like this and say, provide all of the documents that you have. So the idea that the prosecutors are still going forward with a case where they have demonstrable evidence proving Ms. Moses' guilt, or rather innocence, pardon me, is a travesty of justice. And it just makes no sense unless it's purely a political thing where Weirich's office does not want to have egg on its face for choosing not to go forward on this case. <clears throat> no, you're you're absolutely correct. You know, um, we're demanding that Amy Weirich drop the charges and believe that you know this is retaliation um, for Miss Moses speaking out numerous times against Miss mm -hmm. Weirich. But, you know, in this instance, her office now has all the evidence to exonerate Miss Moses, and we're demanding that the drop the, that the charges be dropped immediately. Michael. All right. Uh, well, first of all, Ms. Moses, you know, you are a true warrior, so I want to thank you for your perseverance. But I, I was just trying to find out from the attorneys uh, I've been following this case somewhat. The, the, the documentation that caused Judge Mark Ward to order a new trial, uh, can you give us a little insight what that documentation is? And then also, uh, are you all looking at, I know she suffered from a, a severe case of COVID-19 while in jail as well. Uh, are you all looking at a civil lawsuit once you get uh, charges exonerated? 
So at the moment, what we're doing is we're just looking at all the legal options that Ms. Moses has at the moment. Um, but okay. what we're first and focus, what we're focused on first is actually having the cases dismissed. And so the next hearing date is April the 25th. Uh, we'll be out there, and at that time, hopefully, the district attorney's office does the right thing, does not move forward with the new trial and dismisses. And at that point, you know, we will uh, gather with the legal team out here, uh, Mr. Bryan and myself, um, and others, and determine if we're going to move forward with any civil charges. And the, the, okay. to answer your question with regard to the document that you're referring to, that was an internal, it, I wouldn't even call it an internal document. It was an investigation conducted by the Department of Corrections uh, shortly, and Ms. Moses talked about it briefly. It, it was shortly after uh, Ms. Moses had been given this document saying that she had the right to restore her her her, uh, her rights. And, and so that document, whether it was a number of communications as well as a report, those all evidenced what exactly happened. When Ms. Moses was convicted, they convicted her on knowingly, um, you know, submitting this document, given the fact that she was aware she had she was on felony probation, and that just wasn't accurate. The uh, the the individual who testified, that supervisor, he also made mess as far as I'm concerned misrepresentations on the stand during trial, where he said Ms. Moses forced him to do X, Y, and Z. However, that document specifically. Um, you know, stated otherwise. And that is why the judge looked at this and said, hey, you know what? Um, I, I just don't believe that Ms. Moses was given a fair chance to present all the evidence available to her for a jury to determine what her thought process was when she submitted that document. And I will tell you, and Ms. Moses will most certainly tell you, she had no clue. She thought she was doing the right thing. And it, it really just, you know, you guys, it's political persecution. I'm sorry. I just, mm -hmm. it, it disgusts right. me. It absolutely right. disgusts yep. me. Well, and, uh, yeah. no, no, go ahead. Go ahead and finish your point. Oh, no, I was just saying that Ms. Moses deserves every right available to her. And, and really, uh, she's a wonderful woman, and she fights so hard for all the injustices that are happening in Tennessee and specifically Memphis. And for that, and for speaking up for black people, this is what happened to her. And that's why we're here to fight for her. Well, I will say this here, uh, people always is the reality is uh, people don't, people who may not realize, and we've been covering the story, uh, Tennessee uh, has frankly been at war with activists. Uh, we saw uh, how they tried to criminalize uh, individuals who were trying to register people to vote, uh, and same thing when it came to people protesting as well. So it's no shock uh, that we'll see uh, the actions taken uh, against you. And like I said, we've been covering the story of Crystal Mason, uh, a sister who has been just put through pure hell, uh, and they still are going after her uh, because, and, and, and they testified, even in her case, her own probation officer, that she was not told that she could not register to vote. They didn't care. They still pursued it, uh, sent her back to federal prison, and now trying to put her in state prison. So it's unbelievable, uh, these actions being taken. We certainly appreciate uh, uh, all three of you joining us to lay out all the details uh, of this case. Uh, hate that you have to go through this, uh, but uh, this is the reality that black people have had to face in this country in trying to uh, keep and get the right to vote uh, since 1619. And um, I just want to say this, you know, regardless of, you know, the situation, no one is promised tomorrow, so I don't really worry about people going after me. You know, look at what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. No one would have thought that last year, but people need to understand this is an election year. Mm -hmm. And the same people who are going up after me, they are 
they're up for re-election. So the people that, you know, I see you wear the Alpha Phi Alpha uh, shirt, your fraternity brothers, and just like my attorney's fraternity brothers who do have the right to vote, they need to stand in unison and send a message to Memphis and the rest of America that if you want to go after people when we have murder all over the city, we're going to go after your position and find someone to replace you. I agree. Oh, trust me. Uh, I have spoken uh, extensively uh, to the Alphas and to all members of the Divine Nine about using our collective power uh, to speak out and show folks, uh, ensure our colors and flex our political muscle. Uh, and so that's why when people say, oh, I'm not going to vote, it means nothing. Oh, trust me. Those individuals out there, they see, they know the power of black votes, which is why they're trying to do all they can to stop us from voting. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so very much. We'll be following your case at the end. All right, thank you very much for having us. All right, thank you very much. All right, folks, uh, we're going to be taking your phone calls. You can weigh in on this story as well if you want to. Uh, so give us a call. I see some of y'all are on the phone lines right now. Uh, and so the number to call is 202-890-1199-202. Uh, go ahead, pull the graphic up. Thank you. 202-890-1199. If you want to give us a phone call uh, to share your thoughts, about the Crown Act, about this story uh, as well. Uh, and uh, again, 202-890-1199. Don't forget, folks, you can also, uh, um, uh, first of all, support us in what we do. First, you're watching on YouTube and Facebook. Again, hit the like button. We, we should be getting 1,000 likes every single show, folks. Uh, and so uh, I shouldn't have to be asking. It's 642. Uh, so come on, y'all got 30 minutes to find another uh, 358. Uh, let me thank uh, Carrie Morant, Tommy Williams, Faye Drain, Effie Coley, James Fennell, Lanice uh, Adams, and again, Montre Jones for giving to us during the show. Y'all can support us, folks, uh, via uh, Cash App, uh, RM, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered, uh, Venmo is RM Unfiltered, Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com, rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com, PO Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037. I'll be right back. Black Star Network is here. Hold no punches. A real uh, revolutionary right now. Support this man, Black Media. He makes sure that our stories are told. Thank you for being the voice of Black America, Roller. Hey, Black, I love y'all. All momentum we have now, we have to keep this going. The video looks phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig?
Y'all know who Roland Martin is. He got the ascot on, he do the news. It's fancy news. Keep it rolling, right here. Rolling. Roland Martin. <laughs> right now. You are watching Roland Martin, unfiltered. I mean, could it be any other way? Really, it's Roland Martin. Folks, a federal judge has ordered the California Highway Patrol to release the video showing a Southern California man screaming, I can't breathe, while multiple officers restrain him, restrain him as they try to take a blood sample two years after uh, his death. I mean, folks, this is 38-year-old Edward Bronstein was taken into custody on March 31st, 2020, following a traffic stop. The nearly 18-minute video taken by a CHP sergeant was released as evidence Bronstein's family wrongful death lawsuit. Now, we want to warn you, the video we're about to show you is triggering and extremely hard to watch. So we're going to give you some time to turn away or get kids out of the room uh, if uh, you want to before we actually show you this video. We're only going to show about two minutes of this particular video. Uh, and so, again, uh, we're giving you time to step away. So let's go ahead and uh, play the video now. You're bringing the fight to this, not us. I'm not fighting it at all. I then have a seat and provide your arm. This is your last opportunity. Otherwise, you're going face down on the mat, and we're going to keep on going. Stop resisting. Let me breathe. Let me breathe. Let me breathe. Let me breathe. Please. Stop moving. I can't breathe. The more you move, the worse it's going to be, bro. They're pushing it right down. I can't breathe. I can't. You're pushing. Oh my God. Wait. 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 W
Folks, Bronstein died less than two months before George Floyd. Bronstein's daughter, Brianna uh, Palomino, and her attorney, Michael Carrillo, from Pasadena, California, join us right now. Uh, it is, uh, we're sorry, uh, sorry there, uh, Brianna, that we had to show that video. It has to be very difficult for you uh, to actually see uh, that video. Um, what I'm not understanding, Michael, again, this is, this is just a, we, we've done so many of these stories. And what I'm not understanding is why you didn't have a cop sit there and say, hey guys, back off. Let's get him calm before we continue. Why did they have to draw his blood at that very moment? Well, I think we're at a loss for the answers to those questions as well. Um, the problem here is that the person that's actually video recording the entire event was a sergeant. So he's the supervisor. He's the one that's supposed to control the situation. No, wait, 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 hold, hold up. The person who should be directing the officers, he's videotaping, saying, did, did, I, that portion that we heard nothing, was he talking at all on the 18-minute video? Well, at the beginning of the video, you'll hear him say things like, you know, you have to comply, or you're, if you don't give it up, we're gonna keep going. He says something about, we're gonna keep going. That's the gentleman that's in charge of the whole scene there. That's the sergeant. So when you have someone like that leading the, the blood draw, then what are the other, supposed to, the other officers supposed to believe? That they can do whatever they want. Was, what I'm trying to understand, um, they, why were they drawing his blood? It was a traffic stop. Yes, so he was pulled over for a, an alleged driving under the influence. And the officers at the time believed that uh, he was driving under the influence of, of a drug instead of alcohol. He did a breathalyzer on the street when they pulled him over, uh, but it didn't come back above a 0.08. And so officers felt uh, that they wanted to get a blood sample. They, in fact, did get a, a warrant to get his blood sample but uh, there are a lot better ways to get a blood sample than to essentially suffocate a man to death. And so that was that was with the ruling by the medical examiner. He died based upon suffocation. The ruling by the medical examiner was uh, restraint by law enforcement and methamphetamine intoxication. So those two factors combined. Now they, they ruled it uh, undetermined cause of death. But I think we can all see on the video that it's a homicide. It was a killing by these officers of this, of, of Edward Bronstein. Um, Brianna, uh, what did California law enforcement authorities say to the family? Was there any apology? Did they, or did they just simply say, hey, if he hadn't resisted, he'd be alive? What, what was their reaction? Um, up until now, they still have not said anything um, due to pending litigation. Um, how many children did your father have? Five. Five children. Um, he was, what did he do? He was training to be an airplane mechanic. He had actually just finished passing all his tests. Um, so he was pretty much set and ready to go when this happened. Uh, that is, uh, j j just shocking and astounding. 
Um, I, I'm going to go to my panel. They have some questions uh, uh, for uh, both of you. Matt, you're first. My first question for you is, what is the law as it relates to the time frame that they can execute a warrant in California? I know, obviously, in uh, driving under the intoxica intoxication um, crimes, generally the time is important. But what I've seen in my career is that if they have a subject that they don't believe they can get a uh, blood draw from safely, they wait until they can do so. So is there any reason that it had to be executed right then? That seems to me to be the problem because that creates obviously the, the Fourth Amendment issue we see here with the seizure being unreasonable. What is the law in that respect in California? Well, the, the law in California, as I understand it, is that uh, once the warrant is obtained, then they have to take reasonable measures to obtain that blood sample. What I think is important to remember here is that when Edward is turned over onto the, his front side, he says, I'll do it willingly. I'll do it willingly. And you hear that on the video countless times. And yet there is no regard whatsoever for his life, to saving his life. And what you don't see in those two minutes that was played is even after they flip him over, he's lifeless, he's blue in the face, he's dead. They don't call CPR, they don't administer first aid. They literally try to slap him to wake him up as if that's gonna do anything to a man that doesn't have a pulse and is dead. Uh, Kelly. Um, first, I want to say to the family, uh, my condolences on your loss. Um, to humanize, uh, Mr. Bronstein a bit. Could you just um, talk about how who he was to you as a father, um, just as, you know, someone important in your life and the impact that this tragedy has had on you? Yes, of course. Um, he was very passionate about helping others. Um, he was always there for me. I'm his oldest daughter, so he would always come over to eat my home-cooked meals. Um, you know, he was there to provide comfort as a father, and that is just something that you can't replace, and I believe every daughter needs their dad. Um, he was an outdoors kind of guy. He loved hiking, swimming, gymnastics, biking. You know, um, he was happy doing that, and I miss the warmth of his hugs. I miss his um, his voice. You know, it, it's it's really hard on me to continue, continuously watch this video of him um, and to see the opinions that others have of him. Michael. Well, first, my condolences to uh, Brianna and uh, the family. Um, I mean, this is this is horrific. Um, to the attorney, so. Uh, Mr. Bronstein died March 31st, 2020. That's almost two years ago. Um, what caused the federal judge to release the, the video that you just showed? What caused the federal judge to release the video now when um, Mr. Bronstein died almost two years ago? And then uh, they talked about uh, the medical examiner said the death was uh, acute methamphetamine intoxication during restraint by law enforcement. Um, so why haven't charges also been brought against these officers? It's been two years. Can you shed some light on that? Sure. You're asking a lot of great questions. The second question you have is the same question that we keep asking. Why haven't any of these officers been charged with a crime, anything related to his death? They have not. The district attorney's office 
uh, George Gascon in particular, their office is not commenting. We've tried for the last year and a half to see if there's going to be any movement, if there's going to be any charges. We don't know the, that information. We hope that they take action and get justice for the family in some form. Now, I, I do want to say uh, the attorney general's office of the state of California, Rob Bonta, you know, he can file charges as well. But what I find interesting is that he, as the attorney general, talks a lot about transparency in law enforcement, uh, supports bills that, that deal with transparency in law enforcement. But his office is the one that prevented us from releasing this video for about a year and a half. I just want to say that when when Edward Bronstein passed away, his family did not know the circumstances for his death. That was kept hush-hush. We tried for... As soon as we got the autopsy report, thankfully, the coroner's report came out with a very detailed description about what they saw in the video. At, at that point, we figured out that there was a video. We tried uh, to get a Public Records Act request to get the video out. They denied our request. They said, we'll see you at trial. Through the case, uh, they wouldn't turn it over unless we agreed not to, to produce it to media. Only recently did the judge, but because we had requested it, only recently did the judge say, you can release it as of March 15, 2022. If it wasn't for us taking those steps, who knows how long the attorney general's office would have kept this hush-hush. Because of how disgusting and vile it is, they even applied to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to try and overturn this judge's decision. They did everything in their power to not to release this video. So it took extraordinary me measures and this amount of time. Well, thank you. Uh, well, again, it's just, you know, we, we've done so many of these different stories and uh, the family that you want answers to what happened and why your uh, loved one is not with you uh, today as a result of these actions. Uh, thank you so very much uh, for joining us, uh, sharing your story. Uh, Brianna Palomino, thank you so very much, uh, as well as uh, let me thank uh, your attorney, uh, Michael Carrillo, as well. Can I just say one thing, yeah. Roland? Yes. I apologize. We're organizing protests this Thursday to support the charges being brought against these officers. We will get the information out on social media. If you can spread that to your yep. to your viewers, that would be fantastic. Yep, just simply uh, be sure to tag us at Roland S. Martin on Instagram and Twitter, uh, and we'll be sure to share that as well. Thank you so much. All right, thank you very much. All right, folks, uh, got to go to break. We come back, we'll talk uh, HBCU transformation in our Education Matters segment. Also, we take uh, more of your phone calls. Uh, weighing in uh, on uh, some of the stories here. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network.
Don't you think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and my new show on the Black Star Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Nelson. Hi, this is Cheryl Lee Ralph, and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go to the phone line. Sharon. Sharon from North Carolina. Sharon, you're on Roland Martin. Hi. What's up? Hi. My name is Sharon. Um, I went to St. Augustine when it was a college and um, now it's the university. When I was working um, as an extra job at a cafeteria, um, I had got my hair braided. Mm -hmm. And one of the managers came to me and said, that I had offended customers because of my hair. They were used. He, they were used to you having your curly natural hair, not not those braids. And he said that um, I just want you to go home today to take them out. But I did not take them out. I stood firm on him and I told him, you know, I don't have to work here. You have, my hair doesn't justify who I am. And I could be offended by how they wear their hair also. Because you want to see the, the curly hair of my South Asian, African-American descent. You wanted to see that, but you didn't want to see my blackness. And you wanted me to do what you said. So I quit and walked out because it don't justify it. And I hope this crown act goes through. Then, um, look, what, what you described is exactly what, uh, you know, why this law was absolutely passed. Uh, and excuse me, in the House, now it goes to the Senate. Uh, Karen, we surely appreciate it. Uh, so I'm sorry, Sharon, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling. Let's go to uh, Texas, Demetrius Spencer. Demetrius, you're on Roland Martin Unfiltered, the Black Star Network. What's up? Yes, sir. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Yes, sir. So um, I'm also from North Carolina, born and raised. Uh, I'm a graduate of Winston Southern State University. And in regards to the Crown Act, uh, when I was 15, working at uh, a um, supermarket chain, 
uh, named Win Dixie, I was told I had to cut my throat in order to continue to working at the store. So, um, you know, at the time, I, I chose the money. I went ahead and cut my throat, kept my job, and kept on working. But, you know, kind of like deep down inside, I felt that it was wrong. But, you know, being in rural North Carolina, I really didn't have um, a resource such as yourself to, like, empower me or to empower my parents to speak out um, against things like that. Okay. All right, then. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Uh, Roger Roy, New Jersey. Roger Roy, you're rolling back down the filter. What's up? Hello, hello. Yes, sir. What's on your mind? Hello. You on the air? Go ahead. Can you hear me, sir? Yes, you on the air. Go ahead. Yes. This here is a reminder of Dr. Ibram K. Kendi of Boston University. His book, Stamp from the Beginning. Over 600 years ago, Europeans stamped us as all type of negative images. And it reminds me also of Dr. Michael Dyson, entertaining race. We got to entertain white folks for acceptance, which is which is just nonsense. And at the same time, right now, going on in Florida, there's a young student about to graduate from a high school in Florida, and they say he can't attend graduation if he don't cut his dreadlocks off. So this is ridiculous that we have to keep on proving ourselves to white society. It's, it's just, we, got, we come in so many variations. We have so many styles, but at the same time, they say they don't like us, but they copy us so much. They want to they entertain like us. They want to wish they could play sports like us, and they'll go to the beach and spend $1,000 and go somewhere and get a suntan to look like us. Now, we don't have to put up with it. I don't think we got to prove ourselves to anybody, anybody at all. Okay. All right. And I, and I appreciate you bringing this subject up. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Uh, all right, folks, uh, let's now go to um, our Education uh, matter segment. HBCU folks are going to be getting some assistance with health and sustainability by improving student outcomes in retention and graduation rates, expanding enrollment and increasing capacity building with faculty and staff. Thurgood Marshall College Fund, the United Negro College Fund, and the Partnership for Education have joined forces to launch the HBCU Transformation Project. Joining us is Ed Smith-Lewis, Vice President of the UNCF Strategic Partnerships and Institutional Programs. All right, so glad to have you on the show, Ed. So exactly what is this, all right? Trans transformation of the project. What are you transforming? Well, first, Roland, thank you for having me, and I appreciate the Black Star Network for running this story. Uh, we are transforming outcomes for institutions. Ultimately, our goal is to increase the number of students that attend HBCUs, the number that are retained and persist and ultimately graduate. And our ultimate aspiration is that once we get those institutions functioning high with the students that they have, that we expand their enrollment to really ultimately disrupt poverty in low-income communities. And so uh, this, uh, this project, uh, first of all, how long is it? How long is it? What does it actually entail? 
Um, it entails multiple different pieces. Um, at present, uh, Blue Meridian Partners, the funder behind this work, has provided an initial, and I say initial, investment of $60 million over the next four years to support six primary activities. Number one is that institutional improvement, really partnering with a set of HBCUs, both public and private, to improve their capacity to deliver against those aspirations of student success and career outcomes. Number two, that it's going to work closely with UNCF, Thurgood Marshall, as well as Partnership for Educational Advancement to build our capability to support these institutions for the long term to continue what is likely to be a long generational journey to get to that ultimate aspiration. The second piece is we're going to work aggressively leveraging organizations like UNCF's Public Policy Unit as well as Thurgood Marshall's to amplify the need at the federal and state level for more public resources to HBCUs. Part four, we're going to look to private private philanthropy, private corporations to support these institutions in a fundamentally different way. On average, HBCUs, HBCUs receive 100 times less in annual funding from the federal government in the form of contracts as well as corporations, etc. We want to close some of that gap. Uh, sec, uh, sec, uh, the fifth piece is we're trying to work with institutions to really partner with their local community-based organizations and other economic development partners to galvanize a networked approach within the local space and place that these institutions occupy to transform outcomes. And then finally, we really want to reorient the narrative around what learning is and to push higher education to think about learning as an inclusive activity, whether uh, as opposed to what it is today, uh, mostly an exclusionary one. Uh, I want to bring in my panel right now uh, for them to ask you some questions. Michael M. Hotep, you're first. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing this information with us. And uh, looking at your uh, six interdependent sub-initiatives, I, I just wanted you to flesh out more and give more information about the sixth one, reorienting the narrative surrounding HBCUs toward their outsized impact on social and economic mobility outcomes. Can you can you give us some examples of of um, what that six initiative is going to do? Uh, absolutely. Uh, if you know HBCUs or you've had a, a fortunate opportunity to attend one, uh, like myself, I'm a first-generation high school graduate th that was fortunate enough to attend Morehouse College, and I have to say, the experience was transformative and life-changing. At the end of the day, HBCUs represent just 3% of all higher ed institutions enrolls slightly less than 10% of all black students in college, but produce nearly 20% of bachelor degrees in the black community and 24% of bachelor degrees in the STEM field. More importantly, HBCUs also produce 40% of black engineers, 40% of black Congress members, 50% of lawyers and doctors, and 80% of black judges. At the end of the day, we believe and we know that HBCUs punch above their weight. And what makes those outcomes even more fascinating is they do that with a 75% low-income student population uh, and enroll about 60% first-generation students. UNCF released a report earlier this year on social mobility, and it showed that HBCUs are twice as likely to improve outcomes for low-income, first-generation Black students than their counterparts. And we're trying to decide, how can we change the narrative around this sort of less-than moniker that HBCUs have right. been trying to shake since their founding, given those outcomes? Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Kelly. Hi. Um, so 
I have, it's kind of like a three prong question. Number one, how many HBCUs will be impacted by this initiative? Meaning, are these just going to be the HBCUs that are under um, UNCF or Thurgood Marshall College Fund? Um, secondly, I read here that there's been a $60 million investment or commitment rather um, already uh, for this project. How much more money do you need and or have? Um, and finally, in the same vein as uh, how much money you already have, how long do you plan on keeping this initiative going? Is this a five-year plan, 10-year plan in perpetuity, um, et cetera? Uh, I appreciate the question. I'll first start with who we're trying to serve. Uh, we are starting with the two uh, membership associations, Thurgood Marshall College Fund, which represents about 47 public HBCUs, as well as uh, United Negro College Fund, which represents 37 private HBCUs. So at our core, we're looking at just over 80 HBCUs that we plan to directly support through this work, not only through direct grants, but shared services, as well as knowledge sharing and communities of practice that we think are critical to including HBCUs in this student success higher ed transformation conversation, where for the most part, HBCUs have been excluded from. So part one, we are starting with our membership associations, but our goal is to build models to expand. Within UNCF, we launched a team that I have the fortunate opportunity to lead today called the Institute for Capacity Building. The Institute for Capacity Building was founded by our current president and CEO, Dr. Michael Lomax, and its focus is on broadly HBCU and PBI, or predominantly black institutions, improvement and transformation. So although we're starting with our core membership, uh, our ideal goal is to develop a model that can scale to many other HBCUs, predominantly black institutions, and other institutions enrolling high numbers of low-income first-generation students. So the aspiration is to disrupt all of higher ed back to that idea that we have to figure out how to be more inclusive in our learning uh, environments as opposed to exclusive. To get to your second question on the resources, um, the short story is HBCUs have been historically and presently underfunded. When you add up the endowments of all HBCUs, it pales in comparison. Actually, it's 10 times less than Harvard University. I want to say that again. All HBCUs endowments combined are 10 times less than Harvard University. And when you start to talk about resources that are needed and you look at the rising cost in higher education, the rising cost in higher education is a product of the commoditization of the industry. And we are trying to figure out how do we reverse that trend? HBCUs have historically charged left of tuition or much less than their near peers. But at the end of the day, our first generation low income students are being saddled with debt. And so we know that in order to reverse that, we have to flood HBCUs with the capital that they've historically not had and with the capital they need to catalyze that change. Uh, we believe that at present there's at least a $6 billion gap on endowments, a half, a half billion dollar gap in capacity. And once you start to unpack some of that, we think it's much, much more. So while this six, $60 million is an important catalyzing piece, those, the third and fourth point, really getting the federal government to move behind these institutions to amplify their impact and getting the private philanthropy as well as corporations to pitch in will be a necessary because we're not closing just present day financial gaps. We're closing those historic ones as well. On the, on the last piece, um, our, our, our North Star goal is that HBCUs become a sustainable 
system of institutions that are operating together. While Thurgood Marshall, UNCF, and our newest partner, Partnership for Educational Advancement, have a lot of the knowledge, resources, et cetera, to convene, galvanize, and provide new awareness, new capabilities into that system, our North Star is that these are thriving institutions working collectively together. And while we would love to be a partner for the long term, I think our job is to work ourselves out of business. All right, then. Uh, Matt Manning, the question? Uh, very quick, uh, and thank you for being here. Um, I'm a Howard man, and I tell you that one because anybody who went to Howard has to tell you they went to Howard. Yeah, before. no kidding. And number two, <laughs> number two, <laughs> because when this conversation comes up, I see it often on social media that there are often complaints about the disparity even among the HBCU contingent, meaning that some of your larger HBCUs have larger endowments and have fewer issues with sustainability. So my question is, for all our HBCU brother and sister that don't go to Howard, go to some other school, how are you going to ensure sustainability relative to their particular needs? What are the metrics internally to determine what Tougaloo needs or some other school as opposed to a school that may have a larger endowment? Well, I appreciate Tougaloo, and as a Morehouse man, I support all HBCUs. I also had a fortunate opportunity to work at Howard University, so I appreciate you, brother. Um, the reality is, if you're, if you're not Morehouse Spellman, Clark Atlanta, FAMU, North Carolina, A&T, Howard Hampton, you're sometimes not recognized for the value you add to your community. And that really gets to that number five piece on developing community and regional partnerships. We know that HBCUs like Russ College in Holly Springs, Mississippi, Voorhees College in Denmark, South Carolina, they are critical drivers of economic impact within their local communities. Uh, UNCF has re released now two landmark reports showing the economic power of our institutions within their local communities as well as their collective impact. We have made it a focus since the beginning of this grant to serve every single member of our two associations. That's 84 HBCUs. I dare most people to go past 10 to 12 HBCUs that they can rattle off because our job is to get to those institutions that typically may not have the brand recognition or the awareness by the field. And that's where we think Thurgood Marshall as well as UNCF become critical intermediaries. We fundamentally understand the diversity of our institutional set, the disparity within our institutional set, and we are working actively to galvanize that community. When I say a system of HBCUs, we know fundamentally that while one HBCU is strong, all HBCUs are stronger. And so we have metrics both on how many dollars we're providing in those spaces and places, how many institutions we're touching, and then we're ultimately looking at impact across the HBCU space as a measure of our success, which means we can't just do it with the select few. All right, then. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so very much. Uh, good luck with the initiative. And uh, uh, as I will keep telling our people, let's keep going. Let's keep going after that money. Appreciate you, sir. All right. Thanks a lot. We're going to take a couple more phone calls before we get out of here, folks. Uh, Felicia Dobson from Atlanta. Felicia, what's on your mind? Hi, Rolling. Can you hear me? Yep. You're on the air. Go ahead. Okay, thank you so much for uh, for your show and educating us on a lot of things. My question for you all is uh, regarding the Crown Act. Now, how are we going to educate our own black community about the Crown Act? Because I work for a black company, and the young lady had natural hair, beautiful hair, and she got promoted, 
human resources myself, they asked her, said, well, what are you going to do about your hair? So my question is, how are we going to educate our own people? Uh, well, look, I mean, folks going to understand, this get passed, it's going to be called the law. Right, Matt? Right. And it's going to be enforced the same way the Civil Rights Act is. So the enforcement will, will be for things like public accommodation, employment, other places where people are discriminated. So I, I think we could go as far as uh -huh. making a white paper or even, even the uh, signs that you see in the workplace that apprise you of your rights, that tell you if this happens, then these are your rights. So that's how I think we need to ed educate people, not only in the workplace, but among our own people, we need to let them know the basics of the law when the law is being violated and how they can protect themselves and vindicate themselves if the law has been violated in their case. Yep, that's exactly it. And so, yeah, trust me, you're going to be seeing those signs uh, in the workplace. Uh, uh, we certainly appreciate your phone call. Also, uh, YouTube, y'all, y'all got 132 likes to get to 1,000. Y'all take it too doggone long. Hit that like button. Y'all should... Thank you. I, it's like a preacher in church. I shouldn't have to be asking y'all to give money. Hit that damn like button. All right, let's go to a Josh Johnson, Jacksonville, Florida. Josh, what's on your mind? You on roll Mark unfiltered. Josh? All right, y'all got Josh up. Josh, are you there? All right, Josh, you're not talking. Going once, going twice. Holla, Josh. Hello, how are you? Yes, hello. Hello. Yes, you're on the air. Who's this? Okay, this this is Joyce Johnson. Joyce, all right. We've been waiting on you, Joyce. Come on. Okay. Uh, I actually called, called to share about the Crown Act, and, and it, it went back as far as... Hello? Yes, you're on the air. Go ahead. Joyce, do this here. Joyce? Jo jo Joyce, do this here. Turn your, steer turn your TV down. You're listening to that. Okay, I was called to share about me back in 1968. Go ahead. Share your story. Joyce, jo 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 Joyce, 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 do this here. Turn your TV down or turn your app down or your computer and listen to me because you're hearing the delay. That's why you have a delay. So turn okay. that. So, okay. so now go ahead and talk. You're live. Go. You're live. Go. Is it much better? You're live. Go ahead. Tell your story. Is it much better now? Yes. Go ahead. Tell your story. Great. Great. I graduated from FAMU in 68, and I had an Afro at that time. My African-American school here in Jacksonville would not hire me because I had an Afro. I was a certified English teacher ready to begin teaching English, and the African-American principal and dean of girls informed me that they could not hire me because unless I changed my hair. And I wouldn't change my hair, so, of course, I stopped teaching and worked for the state. So this thing has been going on about our hair for a lifetime. I, it's just so sad that it's still continuing today. Well, it's no shock, because, the, first of all, Joyce, thanks for your phone call. Look, here's what we have to understand, and this is a reality, Kelly. Black people, black people have had to make adjustments to who we are to accommodate white folks for our entire lives. Yeah. Okay, so part of this thing, Kelly, is that, look, uh, I remember back in the uh, Butch, uh, I remember Earl Graves when he was, of course, uh, of course, the, the late founder of Black Enterprise. 
where he wrote, a, he wrote an editorial saying, uh, you're going to have to get rid of your locks or your braids to come intern for Black Enterprise because this right. is what Wall Street requires. And so, I mean, he said that. He had no problem saying it because his whole point is, this is what, this is what Wall Street requires. This is what Black people have had to do. We've always had to, to change and accommodate white folks in everything. Kelly, go ahead, your thoughts. I absolutely agree with you. It is a conditioning that Black people have as a mode of survival, um, which is why we feel like we have to straighten our hair, which is why we feel like we have to keep um, our cuts low and faded and neat, so to speak. Um, it is because we were not able to survive otherwise. So for generations, we have been conditioned to assimilate to white culture as best as we can, just so that we can survive. What the Crown Act does is basically dismantle that conditioning um, so that we can actually be ourselves without having to assimilate to a culture that's not really ours in the first place. We can just come to the table as authentically as possible, which, by the way, is better for your work environment anyway, so that you can be... Um, as comfortable in your work environment as you can, so you can be as comfortable in your skin wherever you are. Um, I think it's an absolutely fantastic bill. I've been seeing it, you know, uh, get passed state by state yep. for the past couple years now. So I'm just very thankful and excited for it to be passed on a federal level. Uh, well, no, it hasn't been passed on a federal level. It's been passed in the House. Now we got to no, put I'm, House. I'm, I'm speaking it into existence that yeah. it'll get passed on the federal level. Yeah, well, we still got these crazy-ass Republicans, so we got to put pressure on them. So I don't mm -hmm. care what your state is, you got two U.S. senators. Make that phone call. Tell them uh, to vote for it. Uh, last caller, Robert Johnson from Charlotte, North Carolina. Robert, what's on your mind? How you doing, Mr. Rowland? Um, I'm just calling because I'm happy to hear about the Crown Act. Um, I just remember when I was serving in the military, and they would come up with all these um, hair rules and regulations every two years, and I, you know, and I would get so frustrated because I'm like, who are who are they asking about these um, these hair rules and regulations where I had to have my hair faded zero. If I had an afro, it couldn't be no more than one inch in thickness, so on and so forth. So I'm just calling to say I'm, I'm happy about this act. I just hope it can be uh, passed through the, um, through the Senate. And uh, just thank you for everything that you do on your show and the information. Um, it's just making all of us better. I appreciate it, Robert. Thank you so very, very much for giving us a call. All right, folks, that is it for us. Uh, actually, uh, we got actually one more story. Uh, in memoriam, folks, uh, three-time Grammy-nominated jazz and blues singer uh, Barbara Morrison uh, has passed away. Uh, Morrison, known as the sole mother of L.A.'s historic Lamert Park Village, uh, became one of the top jazz vocalists in Los Angeles. She spent most of her life recording, touring, and performing at Southern California jazz festivals and venues. Morrison's albums include the 1996 release of I Know How to Do It and 1999's Visit Me. Legendary jazz and blues singer Barbara Morrison has passed away at the age of 72. Let me thank uh, Kelly, Matt, and Michael for being with us today. Uh, thank you very much for being on the panel. Uh, YouTube, y'all tripping. Now look, come on now. We are about 40 <laughs> away from getting 1,000 likes. Y'all right. know this impacts uh, the algorithm. Uh, so we had 962. So thank yeah, you. Come on, it's 38. It's more than 1,000 of y'all sitting there right now. So click the damn like button. 
I should have to be asking this many times. So let me do this here. I'm gonna give the, give the app, then I'm gonna go ahead and tell you how to give, and then I wanna see y'all, I wanna hit a thousand, so let's go. Uh, so again, y'all download the Black Star Network app. We need to get to 50,000 downloads, then we're gonna make our way to 100,000. Uh, folks, a Black Star Network app. Again, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, Xbox, and Samsung Smart TV. If y'all want to support in what's what we do, again, your dollars make it possible for us to cover the stores that matter to our community. Uh, and so please, support us. A check or money order, P.O. Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037. Cash app is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. And so please uh, uh, support us in all that we do. I'm looking here right now. Uh, we had, I got to give this one shout out because she gave during the show, but I'm trying to find it. Uh, and so hopefully I can go. Oh, here we go. Uh, let me thank uh, Annette Anderson uh, for that Zelle payment. Annette, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, thank you so very much. Let me also thank Janet Hill uh, for uh, with PayPal. Uh, Janet, so uh, Carrie Morant, I said Tommy Williams, thanks a bunch as well. And so I appreciate that. And as you see, folks, we always send, do, uh, scroll the names, all the people who have given to us. Uh, and glad to see we hit a thousand likes. Man, y'all look, y'all make, y'all should not have make me working all this time uh, trying to get y'all to hit a thousand likes. We can put like 2,000 of y'all on. All you gotta do is hit the like button, okay? Uh, so we appreciate it. Uh, that's it. Hey folks, don't forget uh, the Supreme Court confirmation hearing of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson begins at 11 a.m. Monday. We'll be broadcasting it live on the Black Star Network app, so please uh, don't forget that. Also, uh, folks, uh, this weekend, check out the Richard Roundtree one-on-one on Rolling with Roland. Trust me, it's a fantastic conversation. Uh, you will certainly enjoy that. Uh, and that is it for us. Folks, I will see you guys on Monday. Uh, enjoy the weekend. Have a good one. Holla!